I'm Matthew Perpetua, and you're listening to the first episode of FluxPod, the podcast for FluxBlogs, a site I've been doing for getting on 19 years. Uh, this show will basically be me talking to guests about music. Pretty simple. I'll be talking to other music writers, uh, musicians, music industry people, and pretty much any interesting people uh, with interesting thoughts about music. Uh, you can expect a fairly eclectic range of guests over time. So one of my goals is to have this show cover as much ground as possible uh, in terms of music that's discussed and the sort of people who come on the show and the perspectives they bring and you know trying to get at all the different sorts of experiences people have with music in their lives. Uh, episodes are going to come out twice a week, and once the regular schedule takes effect, uh, there will be free episodes on Wednesdays and a premium episode on Saturdays for Patreon subscribers. You can get all the episodes along with, you know, other special things, uh, like liner notes for all the playlists I do, things like that, uh, for $5 per month on patreon.com slash fluxblog. And since that basically means you get at least four or five bonus episodes per month, I think that's a pretty good deal, like a dollar per episode or or less, Uh, and actually 50 cents if you count the ones that... uh, you know, are not uh, paywalled. Uh, my guest for the first episode is Rob Sheffield, and uh, Rob has been writing features, reviews, and columns for Rolling Stone for many, many years now, and has written three books mixing music criticism and memoir, Love is a Mixtape, Talking to Girls About Duran Duran, and Turn Around Bright Eyes. He also has two books of critical writing, On Bowie and Dream the Beatles, which are about what you would think they're about. And he also wrote about half of the Spin Record Guide from 1995, which is a big deal to me. Rob is a good friend of mine, and in this episode, we catch up about his experiences with music during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that will spin off into a bunch of tangents I think you will enjoy. Rob and I talked a lot for this, and I initially intended to have it be split into two episodes, but it's actually going to be three. This episode you're about to hear is a regular episode, which is kind of the template for you know most episodes going forward. And the other two is actually one that's split in two because it was just came out to like 90 minutes, and I want to keep the episodes under an hour. Uh, and that's basically me playing a game with Rob in which I picked a couple albums that are back to back on the Rolling Stone greatest uh, 500 greatest albums of all time list that just recently came out and had him riff on what he thinks connects those two artists. And Rob has a real gift for this. It's kind of a superpower. And I just wanted to put him to the test. And he really came through. I think you're going to really enjoy those. But those are both going to be premium episodes in the coming weeks. So if you want to hear those, you got to subscribe. Got to subscribe. Let's move on to the show. Rob, why don't you tell people who you are and what you do? Uh, my name is Rob Sheffield. I'm from Milton, Massachusetts. I write about music and, uh, and I guess, the passage of time through music and the passage of music through time. Well, there you go. Um, so I'm, I've been curious because we haven't really talked uh, too much since the uh, pandemic began. I've been curious, like, what has the experience of the pandemic done to how you've been experience, experiencing music, but especially like new music, because I, I know that you've always been like a really big show goer. And, that, you know, I've been curious, like, how is not going to shows impacted you? 
Yeah, not having shows basically it basically sort of takes the experience of seeing how the song affects you in different places. I mean, a, a, a lot of the records that I've enjoyed an awful lot over the past six months are records that I've enjoyed within a basically a few feet of each, of each other. Uh, I haven't traveled a lot of distances with a lot of the music that I've listened to, uh, which is usually how I measure whether it works. I like to take it on a walk. I like to uh, go in a room full of people and hear the people playing their song. And in a live setting, you can definitely tell. I mean, it's weird that this Stephen Maltmus record that I've loved very much since February, but I still have no idea how good it is or not, because you get that feeling when you go see Stephen Malcolmus as was going to do at the end of March, as I'm sure you were going to do in the same room. Yeah, and, and, and maybe May of next year, I think. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, but a totally different room. Yeah. Different room, which is not a good room for his guitar, unfortunately. Saw a show there uh, 10 years ago where you just couldn't hear any of his guitar. And I'd, so I was really looking forward to this show because even if you know the songs from the album, you go to the show and there's that starts doing the intro it's like oh yes this one or uh, this one you find out how much you love them quite irrespective of seeing other people react to them or seeing the artist how the artist reacts to them and so that sort of thing of like these Stephen Mountain songs for me are frozen in a moment of time in February which is you know it's great it's not nothing but it's uh it's not quite the same thing as a traveling through space and time with the new Stephen Malkmus album, the way I do. Yeah, and I think this one, uh, because it's a departure, it's a different band unit. It really offered something that would have been a real novelty in seeing it live, and it's it's to have that kind of suspense has been sort of odd. And it's also like you know, e- even with a record like uh, uh, God, what's the previous one called? I'm blanking. <laughs> uh, Groove denied. Uh, you know, he's never just not toured a record, you know, even did we even saw shows for that. So it's, it's strange for him to suddenly be this studio artist who, you know, you just don't see live. Yeah. And that groove denied record. That's funny because that record was really changed for me by that show that we saw um, where it was at the kitchen where uh, seeing him just kind of like mess around with those songs in a more or less, a spontaneous stage setup, you know, with very contrived uh, situations and strategies where these songs would would function, and seeing that playful spirit that he brought to that, that that definitely like changed how I felt about those songs and changed how I felt about all the songs he played. Uh, it for better for worse. Well, I, I would say unambiguously for better. His songs and and his guitar are sort of designed to travel over space and time. And it's weird how uh, a lot of the records that I've I've liked a lot over the past six months, necessarily, I've heard them all in the same room. And uh, that's not how music is really meant to operate, certainly not for me. So it's it's a strange sort of artificial environment for for hearing music yeah i guess it also makes sense that like a record like folklore kind of thrives uh in this environment because it was kind of built under these the same constraints yeah made in locked rooms to be heard in locked rooms (laughs) it's it's also funny well it's just in folklore just specifically in terms of 
uh, Taylor Swift and her songwriting, she's so obsessed with the the transfer from one room to another, you know? She loves doorways. She loves windows. She loves hallways. Literally wrote, <laughs> literally wrote a song about a mansion. <laughs> yes, um, the the whole one of the songs I really love in that album is "This Is Me Trying." Something I love is she's standing in the doorway and she's like, "Hey, this is me standing in the doorway." I'm like, you know, Taylor, you've stood in doorways before. We're very used to hearing you sing in a doorway. In fact, we're kind of assuming that if you're not in a doorway, you're on a windowsill, and either you or the boy in the song are trying to communicate across that gulf, but she's, she's very obsessed with the boundaries between physical spaces. And so it's just very funny that, that these songs are, they really show up that aspect of her, of her songwriting. Like you said, like the song that that's specifically about the house, you know, like it, at no point in that song is she going in or out of the house. And that's very strange, very strange for her to write a song about a house where she's just in the house the entire time. Does she have any songs about being in a corner or is that just more of a Robin and Michael Snipe thing? <laughs> I can't think of any corner songs off the top of my head. Like is she ever in a foyer? I, I, I don't know. She's, she's definitely, she's been in hotels, <laughs> uh, and, and in restaurants, and bars. A lot of bars. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and, it's funny. She's, she's kind of gone back to bars in this album. That's some, that's kind of how we know that she was never really going to dive bars in the first place. Yeah. Well, she's also behind malls. She's, uh, by a lake. I love you that. Know, she's, she's, she's getting yeah, around. I, I thought of that behind the mall song. Well, it's funny. I think of that song constantly, but, uh, the first time I was, that one's August. Yeah. Right? The first time I was going for my COVID test the first time, uh, it required me to be actually behind a mall because I was going to a uh, drive-in COVID test place uh, that was in a mall and uh, you had to park the car and they, they came and they found you and they came out to the car and they just, you know, like uh, did the uh, the whole uh, nasal, nasal invasion thing uh, right there in the car. Um, you, you don't even get out of the car. And, uh, and then it meant, you know, basically pulling behind the mall, waiting for the results. And it, it, it was the kind of thing where, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm actually behind a mall, it, which I, I certainly wasn't expecting to be this summer. And I, I thought of August and I was like, you know, like, I, I guess, you know, she, she must have known in some ways some of us would be spending time behind malls in ways that we hadn't necessarily anticipated not really a place for a romantic rendezvous i think before or then but it's yeah i mean it's a very suburban uh thing so i don't know i guess it's also like behind a mall i i think when i when i actually hear that song i don't really picture behind a mall maybe like behind a strip mall is kind of more what i get in my head yeah it's also it's kind of not like a gallery yeah or it's, something. it's sort of an inherently 80s sort of location it's funny because it it evokes the Springsteen, you know, meet me in the fields behind the dynamo. It's like there really isn't a whole lot behind malls. It's not really a place where, you know, you don't have a lot of privacy. And there's also there's there's really nowhere to meet behind a mall unless you're just, you know, like meeting in a parking lot. You know, she's, you know, writing the song in either 2019 or 2020. And, you know, being behind a mall now is actually, it's very likely to be secluded. Like no, the malls, you know, there's lots of just empty malls all around the country. So 
it's maybe maybe it is more clandestine than it would be from like an 80s or 90s perspective on a <laughs> So um, has there been anything that has kind of, uh, you've had a kind of unexpected or more powerful relationship because it has this context? No, I would, I would have to say it's, uh, it's a lessening effect. Certainly, I mean, just, you know, to, to be personal with you and me for a moment, it's really weird that I feel like a huge part of processing music for me is sitting with you in a bar and arguing about it, you know? and it's it's very weird not it's very weird to be listening to these albums over a period of months without sitting with you in a bar and and arguing over it and it's just i feel like a lot of albums that i've absorbed over the past six months you know they they need to be argued over in various kinds of spaces but certainly like you know the fact that stephen malgus would put out an album and and you and I have not yet had a chance to, you know, sit down and eat some chicken fried chicken and drink some beer and talk about it. It's 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 in many ways early days for this Stephen Mottmus album. I still don't know whether it's any good or not. It, it's a, just a really basic part of processing music for me. And uh, I'm sure you have that with with friends as well. It's it's and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not meaning to diminish the experience of listening to music in quarantine, but 
in a way that that it, music being integrated into my life, what I think of as my real life, my emotional life, my uh, 360 degrees life, um, it's I, I feel like a lot of this music I've listened to, I'm not really listening to all the way if I'm just, you know, listening to it without arguing about it with people face to face that I'm used to arguing about music with. So you haven't really been like walking around with stuff as much as you used to. No, uh, I've been walking around a bit, but it's a, it's a different vibe walking around. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of routes where, uh, you're free from other pedestrians. Certainly uh, a lot of the walking around that I do, even in uh, a relatively uncramped neighborhood in North Brooklyn, where I live, um, and, you know, walking through industrial stretches, you know, you're still going to run into other pedestrians and there's that, you know, like a contested bit of sidewalk space. So you're sort of on guard in a way that you're not, I'm anyway, usually not on guard when I'm walking around listening to music. Yeah. I mean, in the past year, I've become like a real, I've become extremely ambitious in, in, in taking walks. I've just, you know, go on like these 12 mile plus walks, um, like all over the city. And, you know, it's, it's a little easier. And I guess like, cause I live in park slope and you live in North Brooklyn. Um, I, I'm a little more adjacent to empty neighborhoods. So if I want to just not be near people, it's pretty easy. Like, especially like in the, the March, April phase when like there was like really a maximum level of paranoia. Um, yeah, I could just, uh, easily just like go through Gowanus and then down through these empty parts of sunset, uh, sunset park. And, you know, it's just more or less empty. Um, but I mean, in doing that, like that's been, like a lot of my experience of music uh, has has been like really tied to that to the point where there's just a lot of like big songs this year, which I really just like closely associate with like taking walks. Um, like a, a really good example is like the, the Tame Impala song one more year or the Lady Gaga song, stupid love uh, like stupid love. And another song from the record Babylon are songs I know that I can always put on and they will just always just like give me this like jolt of true joy. See, I feel like I, you know, that Gaga record, haven't really heard it yet because I've heard it almost exclusively within my apartment. Yeah, yeah, that feels wrong. I think like Gaga really needs to kind of bounce off something. I haven't heard it in any kind of bar. I haven't heard it on any kind of jukebox. I haven't heard it in any public setting, any room big enough for it to really echo off the walls. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's not the way that music was designed to be listened to. That adds a sort of, poignance for it that in many ways that song was built for a mall that does not exist anymore it's you know that 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 you know that whole album is designed you know and and designed really specifically for a a way of processing music in time and space that you know just isn't available as a way to uh to process that album yeah, I've heard I've heard uh, "Rain on Me" a lot in public settings, and so it's like a, at least getting a little bit of that with that song, at least. But yeah, everything just kind of feels robbed of a larger context this year. And you know, there's certain ways where it's like not having shows, not having some of these things. Uh, you know, part of me is like, okay, you know, I've been going to you know probably a minimum of fifty shows per year since like. 
<sighs> since the early aughts, been going to shows since 1995 in my life. That's a good long time. So having a little break is not the worst thing in the world. So, you know, that, that, that's a strictly personal thing. Um, uh, but yeah, just like, I, I don't feel, uh, like, like having like these things be different. I don't, I don't mind things being different. It's just the, the, the threat of things being permanently different is the more uncomfortable thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not clear. I mean, I mean, that that record certainly, like Chromatica, especially, like that's that's a record that's just it's it's built for a time and space where I just have not heard it yet, and and really will not hear it because you know it, it it's a record that was designed to make a certain kind of uh, immediate public impact, and it's you know the way I hear it, it's you know it's a private small record that's that's a little loud for whatever kind of moment or mood that i'm hearing it in yeah that and the duo lipper record are kind of like the the kind of without intentionally being it just became the the private party record we only have the Ancient city style. Talk it out. Babble on. Battle for your life. Babble on. That's gossip. What you on? Money don't talk. Rip that song. Gossip. Babble on. Battle for your life. Babble on. Babble on. Have you been uh, more engaged with older music as a result of all this? Um, yes, uh, listening to a lot of uh, a lot of older music, but it's the kind of thing where there's a certain uh, yeah, it's it, sort of the artificial conditions. You know, like I'm not asking them to you know to to not be there. So uh, to a large extent, like you know, I listen to a Fairport convention record in 2020, it's very different from hearing it in 1985 or hearing it in 1995 or hearing it in 2015. It's just, uh, it's just a different time and place for hearing it. And, uh, um, well, see, I'm trying to get a sense of how different it is. There's a great song on, uh, one of the Richard and Linda Thompson solo albums, jet plane in a rocking chair talking about a sea cruise and a diving bell and that's kind of what it feels like to me listening to fair park convention songs in 2020 i started out listening to a lot of fair park convention and richard thompson records in uh, the spring partly because those were records that i associated with um you know with 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 plagues they're they're songs that are very much about sort of uh a sort of irish celtic environment of plague and famine and pestilence and disaster uh which is very much you know the folk tradition that those songs come out of worlds that you know that my grandparents were born into certainly in in 19th century ireland uh when you know 
a flu would come around and and you know half the village would die. Uh, that kind of thing, like very real to them. So that that element of those Irish songs are very uh, very vivid to me. And in those Richard Thompson songs, there's this amazing sense of of space. Of you know, a song like "Meet on the Ledge" is basically a song about having your little farmhouse and you can see the farmhouse on the other side of the hill, but you don't know if the people in it are still alive or not. And you know, you're you're kind of looking from a distance to see if those people are up and about. Uh, that sort of sense of of a, a community forming across distance, you know, created by just you know sound moving across space and across time. So there's that sense of of it, it's very fitting for those particular songs, um, but it's uh, it, it's it's there, there's something weird about hearing them. Uh, at a time, partly like I went to listen to them, you know, in, in March when we thought that this was going to be, you know, a few weeks or, or even a few months. Um, it's, it's, it's different hearing them with a, a, a more prolonged sort of uh, quarantine. And it's, it's definitely different hearing them in that kind of environment. We used to say that come the day We'd all be making songs Oh, finding better words These ideas never lasted long The way is up Along the road The air is growing thin friends who try blown off this mountain with the wind I mean, yeah, I guess like also part of what makes all of this so difficult is like having no precedent in your life. And, you know, you're a bit older than me, but either way, it's the like, this has never happened in any, uh, I don't think any, anyone alive's lifetime. So certainly not in the Western world. Um, yeah, just having no context for things makes it very difficult. Um, has there been anything, uh, have you been going to things that are more uh, comforting? Uh not necessarily uh everything's sort of sort of unprecedented um so it's it's there isn't a sense of well this is what i usually go to when you know when when i i see like almost nobody i know face to face for six months at a time um and that's a very different kind of uh yeah different kind of experience from the sort of thing i've experienced before and it's weird how music you know, changes with regard to, uh, you know, to the era that you hear it in. For instance, I, last summer, it was my uh, high school reunion. Uh, I, I went, it was, and 
very, very fun conversation turned into a conversation on um, my friend Patrice's porch at four in the morning. A lot of people talking about the bizarre fact that songs about the 80s nuclear power race, nuclear arms race, uh, is that those songs are so popular now among young people who have no idea what the nuclear arms race was. So the fact that so what what is like so what examples of that would be like uh, ninety nine look below like everybody knows this song. I guess nineteen ninety nine would be one of those. Nineteen ninety nine is a song that you hear everywhere. Well, you did back when you know when you went everywhere, but uh, but nineteen ninety nine a song hearing that is like a fun up party song, a song that you know is is just sort of ubiquitous and universally beloved. Um, Gosh, that's very, very, very strange. <laughs> um, and, and hearing it loved by people who have uh, never, never actively considered, you know, that this will be the way they die. This will be, you know, the way that nuclear war happens. 99 Love Balloons, it's different because it's in a foreign language, but it's still like a, a, a pretty, uh, a song that certainly like everybody hearing it at the time was, you know, was pretty clear about about what it was about and and you know even a song like crazy train it's still it's so incredibly weird to me what a universal sort of song crazy train is compared to you know the specific moment that it comes from in terms of cultural history it's 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 fairly explicitly a song about uh you know the nuclear arms race between uh the u.s and the ussr and uh and and the rising uh, escalation of the Reagan era and the Brezhnev era as, as that era begins. It's very much a song about the seventies turning into the eighties. And, uh, and it was fun to talk about this at four in the morning with a lot of my friends who were in high school around the time that these songs were coming out and we loved them. And part of us is really gratified and cheered that a song like 1999 is so huge now. Uh, but also it's very weird for us. And it's, it's, it's funny that like a lot of songs, it, it's easy to imagine a song like, you know, like Gaga's stupid love hearing that at a wedding 15 years from now and thinking, God, this is so weird hearing this in a room full of people who are not afraid of being in this room. Um, yeah. Or, or being within a couple of feet. Yes, of exactly. Other. It like <laughs> specific kinds of fear, I guess, that are modulated through history. Uh, I associate a song like 99 Love Balloons or uh, or 1999. Like, both 99s. I never really caught that before. Well, yeah, they both are like it, it's very like, certainly 1999 seemed a long way away. 1999 as a, a year for this seemed extraordinarily optimistic at the time. But even a song like, you know, like you think of a song that nobody thinks of as political, like Holiday by Madonna. That's that's a song that's very much set in a world where uh, people are planning to be blown up at every minute. And uh, certainly like there's there that's a, a long tradition in, in Cold War era pop music. But it's very deeply strange um, to hear 1999 in a setting where that sort of fear is. Uh, that sort of public fear, that shared fear, and the song is sort of a, a therapeutic response to it. That that's not part of, at this point, anybody's experience of that song yeah, at even, all. Even, even though the, the words are so like right out in there, this like we're gonna all die anyway. Um, 
I mean, I remember in the late '90s there just being this assumption that we would have to retire that song forever, like once we're past the year 2000, which has certainly not come to pass. Yeah, uh, certainly not come to pass. Um, and of course, there's a lot going on in that song, but a lot of that song is, you know, like responding, like very, uh, you know, like responding in in a, in a very public way to a very public sort of dread. And it's funny that the, um, and of course, there's also a lot that's private and in terms of the the response and the dread in, in both those sides of 1999. But it's funny that, a, you know, a song like Holiday by Madonna, which is, you know, a very typically frantic early 80s song about, you know, like partying now because, you know, like you could be blown up in any moment. It that sort of uh, emotional edge of the song is, is it, you hear that song all the time now and, and it's, it's totally, it's, it's totally survived that particular era. So I, I think about songs from 2020 in, in the same kind of mode, you know, like what will it mean for people to hear, you know, stupid love at a wedding or, you know, a bar mitzvah or something 20 years from now. And, you know, <laughs> not to associate it with you know being like locked in in uh, in the private bubble where they experienced it and not being afraid of of you know being face to face with people um so in your memories of the 80s which i guess you're a teenager um did you feel that the the sense of like oh we're in the end of days was quite as widespread as it feels right now Oh, much more. Just the end of days. Yes, it was. It was much more widespread. Um, like the uh, like pe- people feel like ominous about the future in a lot of ways. But that sort of like apocalyptic. I mean, that was very much, uh, very much in the air. It was very much, you know, an aspect of seventies rock that's hard for me to access as somebody who is not a, a teenager in the seventies. Um, but you listen to a lot of like early seventies rock, whether it's the stones or black Sabbath or whatever, it's very much people who are planning on either uh, a nuclear war or getting drafted and sent to the foreign war going on in Vietnam. Like death is very, very, very present in a way that is, uh, that was not accessible to me by the time that I was listening to those songs in the eighties. So a song like the, uh, the Rolling Stones doing Midnight Rambler on, on Hot Rocks, the live version from Madison Square Garden. That's, you know, like you're listening to the audience scream. Part of the ominous power of that song is listening to this audience scream for this incredibly morbid, violent song about the Midnight Rambler who's coming for everybody in the audience. And you realize a lot of those people are fully planning on being drafted in a couple of years, in a few months. Uh, it, it's The threat is very present and and they're responding to a, a very present uh, violent threat in a way that, you know, for me, by the time that I heard Midnight Rambler, that was really foreign and alien. And it, it takes a certain sort of imaginative effort for me to, to, to go into the song and hear it in that kind of context. It's kind of like, you know, like when we were little kids and singing, you know, ring around the roses, pocket full of poses, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And, and then you grow up and you read that that was about a the 
bubonic plague, you know, like that's like a, a nursery rhyme folk tale song about uh, about responding to the bubonic plague. But I guess the adult lived the bubonic plague, and you would never tell a little kid that they're not properly appreciating "Ring Around the Rosy" because <laughs> they're not hearing it in a 13th century context. That's a totally idiotic way to respond to any art or any music. You certainly wouldn't tell anybody that they're listening to 1999, the song, wrong, because you know they're not putting it into this context. In any way, sort of locking it inside that context, that would be the wrong way to listen to it. So uh, I'm always fascinated by the way that music changes over time. It was funny for me, just circling back to you know the, the back porch in, in Massachusetts and last summer talking about how weird it is for the, these 80s songs that we associate with this specific historical moment that, you know, these songs have outlived that moment and there's something really kind of beautiful. Yeah. About that. And I feel like a lot of that moment is kind of culturally forgotten to a good extent. Yeah, it is. But a lot of, you know, like it's, it's an obsession that you and I both share is how, uh, how impossible it is to predict the future in terms of music of what music from the past will mean something to people in the future. And, you know, it's never what you think it is. I'm always fascinated by, for instance, just to pick a obvious example right off the top of my head, but Kate Bush, who was somebody who uh, I loved in the eighties and I had lots of friends who loved Kate Bush in the eighties, but wow, people love Kate Bush on a level now that, I, I feel like they hear Kate Bush much better than we did, even those of us who are big Kate Bush fans in the 80s. For some reason, people who were born in the 1990s, they just, they hear Kate Bush, I would say, more closely, more rightly, more accurately, more clearly. They hear what she's doing better than, you know, better than people at the time do, did. Do you think that's in and, some part because <coughs> the context for Kate Bush kind of came after Kate Bush? So like, you know, so you have Tori Amos, you have Bat for Lashes, you have these other artists who exist in the world. And you now know that Kate Bush is kind of like the mother source for this particular aesthetic. Whereas in the time, you don't have that. You don't see the future of it and you don't necessarily see the past of it either. Man, I don't know. Like, I feel like Kate Bush is... uh, alive and music of the present and music of the here and now for people who have never had that kind of relationship to a bat for lashes song or a Tori Amos yeah. song. I don't think it's a case so much of people influenced by her, <clears throat> although that's definitely part of it, but something about those specific songs and that weird sort of, you know, enclosed world that she Kate Bush inhabits that weird sort of uh, enclosed psychic space and music, musical space that was you know, very much part of the context of her songs. They seemed to sort of take place in sort of this artificial bathysphere where it's always, you know, a, a Gothic Victorian novel. And that was something that was always kind of the, the fun of listening to the songs was there was a time travel aspect to it. But I feel like something about Kate Bush and her weirdly sort of isolated world of her own that that speaks to people now in a way that it didn't then. That's that's kind of fascinating. To me. How did how did I people respond of, to her as you remember it? It was Kate Bush, like was someone who she was a cult artist who had a lot of different cults. 
and the cults didn't necessarily know each other or intersect each other. So there were a lot of my first friends who were into Kate Bush, they were like classical music slash theater type people who really liked uh, the technical virtuosity of her singing. They really, they really liked her, um, you know, her, her range. They would talk about her, you know, her coloratura. They would talk about her, her voice in terms of <coughs> how it was much better than popular music. It was something that was on a higher technical plane. So I think of the very first conversations I had about Kate Bush, and these were people who were responding to her as if she was, you know, a, a, a Broadway diva or something. Um, she was just on a technical plane. She wouldn't have, it would have been silly to compare her to, the, you know, the Human League or, or Madonna or the Pet Shop Boys or, uh, you know, the Smiths or something like that. She was just on a, a, a different sort of level. There was also the Kate Bush fans who were um, who were much more uh, punk rock in their tastes. Um, punk rock women, punk rock women who just did not have much else to listen to. It's easily forgotten how few uh, female solo artists, singer songwriters there were in um, in popular music. Uh, before 1990, before 1989 and, and Bikini Kill and everything that followed from Bikini Kill, uh, there just, there wasn't a lot to choose from. And so for a lot of people who were not interested in the technical aspects of what she did and, and had no connection at all to the English prog tradition that she was definitely part of, although it missed me at the time, um, that Kate Bush was nonetheless uh, a singer who had uh, an extreme and to some extent antisocial voice, um, often like violent, morbid, destructive fantasies in the lyrics that were very relatable. So a lot of my friends who are Patti Smith fans were also Kate Bush fans, even though those are artists don't sound like anything at all. It's in the trees. It's coming. And, and 
It seems like a pretty easy connection if you're a Susie fan. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and the sort of new wave Kate Bush, it's funny now that Hounds of Love is, the, you know, it's the Kate Bush album that everybody loves. It's her canonical, crowd-pleasing. It's, you know, it's it's her blue, you know, like it's 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 her astral weeks. It's the one that even if you don't like the rest of her work, you like Hounds of Love. It's funny because I associate Hounds of Love with my friends who are Kate Bush fans feeling really let down that it wasn't as good as The Dreaming, you know, which was a, a much more idiosyncratic record. Hounds of Love was much more of a pop record. And it was very divisive for the Kate Bush fans who were Kate Bush fans at the time. Obviously, it's not divisive anymore. It's, it's about as undivisive as, as a pop record can be. But it, it's funny to see how, you know, people who love Kate Bush now, and she's so much more universally loved and so much more known now than, than she was in her, in her time. Uh, it, it's kind of astounding to me. You know, Joni Mitchell is another example. People just are more into Joni Mitchell and, and just better at hearing Joni Mitchell than they were at the time that she was, you know, at her peak of, of popularity and, and her, at her peak of activity. I find that with Joni Mitchell, like when people talk about Mitch- Joni Mitchell, they sometimes just kind of lop off like uh, maybe a solid two thirds of her career where she's a lot more aggressively artsy. Uh, you know, so she's mostly remembered for that phase uh, where she's kind of most accessible. And that makes sense. But it also just feels like, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've seen, you know, the way people will say like, oh, Taylor Swift is the... Uh, the Joni of her era. And it's like, there's definitely truth in that, but it's like, there's also, I don't know. It feels like it's, uh, ignoring too big a part of Joni. Yeah. But there's, there's a lot more, I mean, albums that used to be sort of esoteric and, and deep cuts that are now so widely known, you know, like Hajira or, or the hissing of summer lawns. Those are very, arcane references in in the 80s or the 90s those were records that were very much deep cuts in the Joni canon um blue is a record that almost literally everybody had whether they were a fan or not um but for i mean it's really amazing to me that Joni mitchell the records that used to be thought of as her more esoteric and difficult records they're just much easier for people to hear now than they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. That's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. I think that's another case where there is just more, there's just, uh, there's more context available for it, both, you know, historically, but also there's just music that has come out of that over years. So if you come to it, having heard any of that music, uh, it doesn't feel quite as strange as it might've been the time. I think that's certainly, you know, I, I was uh, listening to uh, the Rolling Stone podcast earlier where um, Brian Hyatt was talking to Stephen Hyden about his his Kid A book and just hitting on one point where it's like Kid A does not feel quite as strange as it did when it came out. You know, it's like you there's part of it is just kind of getting used to things over time, but it's also just like the music that, com- that comes out of Kid A like normalizes Kid A in some ways. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's true on some level. I mean, it's weird because the music that at the time Kid A sounded very derivative of music that people knew. You know, people uh, knew a lot more about early '90s British electronica than they do now. Um, so it's a case where 
if you were listening to Kid A in Y2K, you thought, oh, that part sounds like Autica. That part sounds like Aphex Twin. Those weren't, you know, those weren't obscure reference points. The way they've become more ex- obscure now. So to the point now where you have <coughs> tons and tons of Kid A fans who have never heard a Warp record and they 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 do not think of that even, I mean, they might be conscious of it. They might have read somewhere that it's source material for Kid A, but to them, Kid A does not sound derivative in a way that it sounded derivative at the time. It, much much the way that Wowie Zowie, if you were listening to Wowie Zowie in 1995, you were noticing all the references to other indie rock bands. You were like, oh, that song sounds like Stereolab. Oh, that song sounds like the smashing, not, not strapping, <laughs> not the smashing field hands, the strapping field hands. Um, you know, like this song sounds like railroad jerk, you know, like, uh, there were a lot of those to this day. Like, these are things I barely know. And, uh, you know, Wowie Zowie is like my favorite record, if not one of my favorite records. Like there's, there's that great song. There's a context I simply don't have for it. Yeah. And, and so things about Wowie Zowie that sounded derivative, not in a bad way, but they were playing with these references that were, uh, you know, pretty much, uh, Lingua Franca for uh, the immediate target audience of Wowie Zowie in 1995. I mean, if you were listening to Wowie Zowie in 1995, you heard Rattled by the Rush and you were like, oh, ha, ha, you know, like they're having some fun with the template of Railroad Jerk. But at this point, 99% of people who've heard Rattled by the Rush, they have not heard a Railroad Jerk record and they probably do not know the band Railroad Jerk, which is a shame because they would love Railroad Jerk. But you know, a lot of people these days would, uh, I mean, the song, the Stereolab parody on, on Wowie Zowie, Half a Canyon, much more famous than any actual Stereolab record is in 2020. It's it's just the way the music has evolved over time. And Kid A is very much the same way. Things about it that sounded like they were obviously derivative at the time don't sound obviously derivative now. So the the, the aspect of the record that would have, you know, the record, in many ways, it sounds less strange now because it sounds more original now. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny because I feel like you could probably look at most anything and kind of arrive at that, where eventually the originality of the thing is really originality is really in the synthesis of like where the the personality meets the influence. So I remember, uh, you know, with Kid A, you know, it's not that it's just taking from like an Aphex twin or, you know, whatever (laughs) like ambient free jazz that brought them to the national anthem, things like that, you know, but it's all like that. Those are still very Radiohead songs. You can't escape the Radioheadness of them, no matter how much they try to bury it, like in the the song Kid A. Yeah, it's it's interesting in terms of like how the reference points change. I mean, that the history is always a moving target. Maybe the clearest example, I mean, always a, a record in terms of canonical famous albums where I'm just always kind of mind blown by their journey through through the canon. But uh, Paul Simon's Graceland, which is, an, it's fair to say, an increasingly famous record. It's not less famous than it was 10 years ago. It's much more famous. It's not less famous than it was 30 years ago. It's much more famous. It's flat out mind-blowingly bizarre how Graceland has become uh, such a canonical album where uh, the sort of 
the curiosity about the African music that went into it, which was not something Paul Simon tried to hide, very much the opposite. Uh, there's almost no concurrent curiosity about that at all. Uh, and that's like a really mind-blowing thing to the point where like when about 15 years ago, when you started having the thing of, of uh, American-born indie rock bands that were trying to sound like Raceland. Yeah. Oh, Vampire Weekend, especially. Well, especially, yes, but not exclusively. You know, Deer Hunter had there were trying to sound like Graceland, period. There was this whole, like... Wait, which record, which record are you thinking of? Uh, I don't know the names of their records, sorry. Uh, the one where they had a lot of wow. saxophone? Oh, okay, yeah, there's, like, one song, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the, the, idea that, the idea that a band would imitate Graceland and cite that as a reference rather than, you know, uh, you know, setting any of like the artists that inspired Graceland. That's extremely bizarre, especially for anybody who lived through the, you know, Graceland in its initial period of, of, of arrival. It seemed like even if you liked Graceland at the time, you just kind of assumed as people heard more African music, which at the time African music was becoming more and more accessible and people thought it would be more and more accessible. And, uh, and just kind of everybody assumed that once you heard, you know, the, the African music that went into it, that Graceland would be uh, less popular. You know, it seemed like it had a definite, you know, cutoff point in terms of how far that record could travel into history. As it turned out, um, Graceland is is an extraordinarily popular record among people who have, you know, one click access to all kinds of African music that you know we would have had to scour the earth looking for in 1986, but just no curiosity about it. A lot of people, Paul Simon's Graceland is a great record in itself, and I'm definitely not saying there's anything wrong with anybody feeling this way about the record, but it to them is not a a. a a weak or compromised imitation of anything. It's it's a great record in itself. That is certainly not something that anybody would have seen coming in the 80s. I think the context for the record for a lot of people too is not that it's uh, Paul Simon does African music or, you know, I guess he, he were Los Lobos on that too, right? Um, but it's just the music they grew up in in their parents' yeah. car. Yeah. <laughs> It has that context. Yeah. And I, I've been like working on like playlist stuff recently that's kind of hit that sweet spot for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, it's not necessarily even like how my what my parents were into, but it's still like stuff that was kind of around. So if you are, you know, in your early 40s through like maybe even early 30s, like this is just like the stuff that was in the world, the stuff that your boomer parents were likely to be into that you develop a connection to. I think uh, Fleetwood Mac has been like a major beneficiary of that. Uh, interesting. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I, it, it's fair to say that they're more high profile now than they were. I mean, they never really had a non high profile phase, but um, there's a big Fleetwood Mac like meme on TikTok as, as we speak as right we now. Speak, yes, Fleetwood Mac are ever increasing, ever expanding. That's you know, again, they never had a period where they were you know in repose or they seemed like they were in danger of becoming obscure or anything like that. But they were pretty uncool, as I recall, like in my own teen yeah. years into the yeah. I, the Fleetwood Mac did not have any connotation of being a cool thing to me until maybe like the mid two thousands. Huh. 
there's a, I mean, a, a lot of seventies stuff, uh, was had a real stigma, uh, passed down from the Gen X cohort to me. <laughs> like, like, I mean, the, the one I'm always kind of bitter about is Seely Dan, who I've come to, that's really one of my favorite acts of all time now. And I just ignored for so long just because I just had so much received wisdom. No, Seely Dan's like the worst thing you could listen to. Don't even bother. Don't even, don't even go down that road. Well, that's a fairly like turning 30 sort of development. That's, that's something it's. And, and yet they turned 30 when they like finished Gaucho. It's crazy. It's it's so weird to me that those records were made by people in their twenties. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I I for me like I uh, I, I I mean it was a pretty standard. I mean it was within months of turning thirty. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a gradual thing of like I learned to like this. It was it was a thing of like you turn thirty and you like Steely Dan now. It's weird. It's it's a you know an an off commented on phenomenon, but it's it's weirdly true. Um, yeah, Steely Dan's also had like a really big resurgence among younger audiences. Yeah, it's been gradual, but it's it's really happened in the past few years. Well, it happens when you know it happens around the time they turn thirty. It's like it's weird. Um, it's a a lot of that is it's definitely like a, it's like an egg timer. Yeah, a lot of that is is the sense that you. Uh, you know, you mentioned with like people associate music with their parents, like Steely Dan, like a lot of it is people, their affection for their Steely Dan loving dads. Um, you know, that certainly like the, the sort of, uh, the rise in mystique of Sheryl Crow over recent years is definitely a, a certain element of that. Oh yeah. Who do you think is kind of in line for that from like people from the aughts? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I can like I, I can kind of like forecast out a bit where like I'm pretty certain Vampire Weekend's gonna be one of those things. Um uh, especially as Vampire Weekend kind of like continue their path towards being like this very odd synthesis of like part jam band, part like millennial Steely Dan. It is a very interesting road he is going down. Um yeah, I, yeah, I'm trying to think who else would it be. I, there's, there's definitely things from the '90s where it's interesting, like which ones of those have had the longest legs. Like, I, I mean, I certainly, I, I mean, people say this all the time, but it's, it's still hard to imagine from a 1994 perspective that Green Day would be the one to like really just last forever. Yeah, that's yes, absolutely nobody, absolutely nobody would have guessed that. Um, it's still, still, still really weird to me. Just today, I got a press release about Billy Joe and his, um, you know, his 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 new album of of covers that he recorded during quarantine. <laughs> and I was reading the song list, and there were a couple times where I was like, "Wow, that's a cool chit. That's a cool choice." You know, like, "Wow, that's cool that he's doing a Reckless Eric song." Like, "Oh, wow, that's cool that he's doing a Johnny Thunder song." And I'm like, "Wait a minute, he's like, he's the dude in Green Day." You know, like it would be weird if he didn't, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's, what's weird is that he's just still doing this. Like, and, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm always in favor of people still doing it, whether it's good or not. I'm in favor of people still doing what they do. But it's funny that, that in terms of Green Day being, you know, the one of that era to achieve that kind of canonical status is, uh, 
yeah, it, it, it's, it's, ap- it's totally baffling the way it was, you know, with Weezer, you know, a few years ago when, uh, when Gen X found out that millennials loved Weezer, it was kind of a, are you putting us on sort of thing? Um, and then a few years later with Blink-182, you know, like the, the, the stature of Blink-182, um, it, it, that one, that one really kind of always puts me on my back heels. That, that one I, I really thought was a joke when people started to tell me that, but it's, I, I, I've had to concede. If, if you were a suburban kid in, I guess the very late nineties to mid aughts, that's just like an inescapable thing. And that's it. I am, I'm absolutely not that person in that period of time. I, I, <laughs> I was just like, it, it's, you know, I don't even think if that stuff was like, a thing in like 1993 i would have liked it because i think there's this a certain like broish brattiness that I, that I just do not connect with on any level yeah but i feel but it's weird how uh yeah it's it's just weird like like i didn't like sublime for example yeah i mean it's it, i i didn't like that at the time but it was a thing where uh you know, I certainly would have became a thing. I, you know, I certainly got it. It's funny, like what a long lived, you know, basically classic rock franchise, you know, sublime turned to be that those sublime records turned out to resonate with people on uh, such a profound level. Long people who are born long after the band stopped existing, but I, I wouldn't, you know, you can't necessarily guess what artists are going to reach that status and, and who isn't, you know, like it's completely bizarre that Weezer reached that point. It's weird that Green Day reached that point. It's weird that Blink-182 reached that point. For all those artists, we could pick out, you know, an example of an artist who seems uh, equally or far more talented, you know, who didn't reach that point, you know? like I think part of the reason those bands reached that point and also like the Red Hot Chili Peppers or Gwen Stefani is I think they just really pushed towards beat. Like, well, they, they kind of, I think they kind of ran towards it in some ways. And then also they just did not feel like they were above being in popular culture the way a lot of 90s bands certainly felt like, you know, like, you know, Pearl Jam hightailed it out of there like in the mid 90s. Uh, you know, the, the, the pumpkins and like all, all those bands of that stature all just kind of ran away from it. Uh, Foo Fighters on the list of, of bands that kind of like, no, we're going to we're going to just do this. We're going to be out there in the mainstream. But so many of those bands just retreated from it. Hmm. And I don't I, I feel like, uh, you know, to in, in the context of the 90s, in the context of a Gen X ethos, like that is like the most honorable thing you could do. But I think to a younger perspective, like there's no honor in running away from fame. For better or worse. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a thing where it's hard to know what to do, really. Um, it's, it, it's a thing where, you know, it's, it's hard to know how these bands are supposed to respond to this moment. Um, but it's definitely true that, you know, somebody that you count out as kind of forgotten by history. Um, well, they're, they're never forgotten by history. Everything comes back. Um, it comes back in weird yeah. forms or small forms or esoteric forms. But, you know, yeah, this is true because Steely Dan is a good example of something that people just would have considered was just forgotten for a good long time. Well, I wouldn't say they were forgotten. I would, I, I would say that, but it's kind of like, it's not in the conversation, not part of things. It's kind of off, you know, 
in a niche. I, I, I remember when I started listening to Fleetwood Mac, how few of my friends I could even confess this to. I had turned and, and, uh, and at the time there was no sort of, you know, like online support for that, for the, you know, now sort of, uh, a standard pathology of, of, you know, like <laughs> of, of turning 30 and suddenly like, wow, you know, like the saxophone solo on Dr. Wu is so indicative of my existential crisis. Saxophone solo played by the way, by Phil Woods, who's also the guy who played the saxophone solo on Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are, which is interesting just because nobody would ever say like, oh, like that saxophone solo on on Just the Way You Are speaks to my soul, you know? But like the same guy playing basically the same solo in a Steely Dan record. I mean, I thought the Minutemen were kidding when they covered Dr. Wu. I thought that was a camp joke that that they did on, on Double Nickels from the Dumb. I was a fanatical Minuteman fan and I thought it was brilliantly comical like that they that they did dr wu um and i certainly didn't envision my life taking a turn where i would listen to steely dan as much as i listened to the Minutemen. but you know it you can't predict that individually how music is going to affect you over time and you definitely can't affect how it's going to affect other people over time and that's something that i've long since stopped founding baffling or bewildering or or intimidating and and now i just i find it inevitable and beautiful and glorious and to me that is the the triumph of pop music's greatness is that no matter uh how much expertise you might be able to pride yourself on and how much uh, historical perspective you might have you will always be shocked when your friends start telling you that the first cd they ever bought was blink 182 and then a few years go by and literally everybody you know loves blink 182 and I, that's just kind of a, a beautiful process that just keeps repeating over and over and over again. And there we have it. The first episode of the flux pod in the can ready to go. You're listening to it. Thanks again to Rob Sheffield. Rob will be back. As I said, at the top of the show for two more bonus episodes, uh, we're going to play a game. Rob gets really into the game. You're going to love it. But if you want to hear it, you've got to subscribe to the Patreon patreon.com slash fluxblog gonna take this episode out with a song that you're listening to right now by margaret glasby it is a song called devotion or album devotion see you next time the next episode is gonna be britney spano i know it's hard to think i might be needing something you didn't know i Cause you put your guard up Faster than Formula One Racing at full speed Baby, I'm on your side When I give you a piece of my mind It's a sign of my devotion When I show you my emotions Baby, I'm on your team We don't need to fight and scream It's a sign of my devotion When I show you my emotions I try my best to get all 
the nonsense off my chest and wear my heart on my sleeves. But more and more, I wonder what I'm trying for when you find my heart hard to believe. Baby, I'm on your side.